0: Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is Alternatives Outlook, a macro view and asset allocation considerations, and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm Christopher Hayward, managing partner of J.P. Morgan Hybrid Alternatives Group. With me today are David Leibovitz, global market strategist, and Pulkit Sharma, head of the investment strategy and solutions team within our Alternative Solutions Group. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. In a year of transition and change, we wanted to help our clients navigate market adjustments. These include quantitative easing across the globe, volatile equity markets, and a long-in-the-tooth economic expansion. This changing investment landscape has given rise to a new publication the J.P. Morgan Global Alternatives Outlook. With nearly 50 years of experience investing in alternatives, more than 800 alternative professionals around the globe, and one of the industry's broadest lineups of alternative investment strategies, we think we are uniquely positioned to offer a publication such as this. Today, I have the pleasure of discussing our alternatives outlook with two of my finest colleagues, David and Polkett. So let's jump in and get into the investment strategy discussion. David, While we acknowledge that the U.S. economy is late in the cycle, we believe that both the economic and markets outlook have room to run. Can you talk a little bit about the growth outlook from here?
1: Absolutely. You know, it's been an interesting couple of years in the global economy, I think, back to- 2017, which was a year of broad based, synchronized global economic expansion. We then moved on to 2018, where we saw much more bifurcation in terms of where the growth was coming from in the global economy. You know, last year, you saw that element of US exceptionalism with fiscal stimulus and tax reform really providing a boost. To growth rates here in the United States. But at the same time, you saw the rest of the world kind of struggle. And the rest of the world struggled for a number of different reasons. In Europe, you saw some drags from the manufacturing sector. Those were primarily related to new emissions equipment being installed in the auto sector, some issues moving chemicals and pharmaceuticals around the Eurozone broadly due to actually lower levels of rivers, of all things. So you saw these one-off kind of idiosyncratic drags materialize across the European economy, but at the same time, the consumer looked relatively healthy. So we think that those types of drags are going to fade. Thinking about Japan, you know, obviously hit by a series of natural disasters, expecting some rebound from that as well. And so 2019 to us really looks to be a year of global resynchronization with respect to growth, but resynchronization at a slightly lower level than was the case in 2017. Now, some people have called this a bad resynchronization. I'm not sure that we should label it good or bad. I think what investors need to be cognizant of is that as the growth differential between the U.S. and the rest of the world continues to narrow, in theory, that could take some of the wind out of the sails of the U.S. dollar, opening a relief valve for the emerging market economies and helping them grow a little bit better in 2019 than they have over the past couple of years. So it's very much a glass half full view. We recognize the risks that stem from lack of resolution on trade with China, that stem from the ongoing government shutdown. We're temporarily open. We'll be still be open a week from now. That's anybody's best guess. You know, there are kind of still some things that we're monitoring, which could impact the pace of global expansion this year. But generally, we are looking for that resynchronization and global growth of somewhere between two and a half and 3% for the year as a whole.
0: Very good insights in there. With that economic background, let's turn particularly to two areas that we get a lot of questions on, inflation and interest rates. What's your take on them going forward? With respect to inflation, you know, we saw inflation heating up Over the first three quarters of
1: 2018, but in the fourth quarter of last year, given a slowdown in the pace of economic growth, given a pretty sharp decline in food and energy prices, you actually saw inflation cool off relative to where it was, say, at the end of the third quarter. Now, we don't expect inflation to be terribly problematic this year. In the U.S., we tend to focus on the personal consumption deflator, PCE. That's what the Fed also looks at when gauging levels of inflation. We actually think that due to slightly slower economic growth in the U.S. this year, as fiscal stimulus works its way through the system, coupled with lower commodity prices, should keep a lid on headline inflation. We actually see headline PCE dipping down to around 1.5% by the middle of this year before re-accelerating to around 2% at the end of the year. And so I think we'll talk more about monetary policy here in just a few minutes. But with respect to the direct implications of this growth outlook and this inflation outlook for the Federal Reserve and monetary policy, these lower levels of inflation should give the Fed some additional cover if they choose to remain on the sidelines with respect to interest rates going forward. So not looking for inflation to be terribly problematic. We think that the core inflation figures, which exclude food and energy, will remain relatively stable. Again, but with the Fed focused on the headline measure and that headline measure expected to soften over the first half of this year, we don't really expect any significant hawkish shifts in monetary policy, nor do we expect runaway inflation that ends up negatively impacting consumer purchasing power.
0: So you mentioned the Fed and the central banks. And so as we look at what the ECB, the European Central Bank, and what the Federal Reserve have been doing in terms of slowing their classic quantitative easing stance as they pulled back, and we've already started to see the emergence of a quantitative tightening environment. What is the stance of those central banks going forward, and how do you think it'll impact things like rates and inflation, as you were discussing?
1: It's interesting. You know, when we penned the outlook a few months ago, I think expectations for the Fed and central banks broadly were somewhat different than they are at the current juncture. You know, our view going into the end of the year was that the Fed would probably hike rates a couple of times this year. They would continue to allow the balance sheet to run down. In a world of stable and moderate economic growth, perhaps we would see a technical hike from the ECB to bring rates back to zero and we were looking for you know one maybe two hikes out of the bank of england over the course of 2019 given all of the volatility that we saw in markets late last year You know, the Fed has really led the charge and come out to say, look, you know, we're not as rushed when it comes to the normalization of monetary policy as perhaps we were suggesting at the end of 2018. So the Fed seems to have sent a signal that at least for the short term, they're going to be sitting on the sidelines. I think that there are two potential outcomes for the Fed this year. I think that they will either hike twice, which is in line with their current forecasts, or they're not going to hike at all. For people who say we're going to see one hike from the Fed this year, I just find that as literally being a simple average of the two outcomes that I see materializing. I think either growth is going to be moderate, inflation is going to continue to grind higher into the end of the year, financial markets are going to be well behaved, perhaps we see some resolution on trade, and in that type of world, the Fed is going to want to hike rates. But if we see financial markets remain volatile, if we see economic growth cool faster than what we're expecting, perhaps further deterioration in terms of trade relations with China, I think that will firmly keep the Fed on the sidelines. And I furthermore expect that other central banks around the world will take their cues from how the Fed behaves this year. So a little bit of haze covering the water as we try to look to the other side of the pond, but still expecting that the path of least resistance for long-term interest rates, which have come back down and kind of failed to move higher as equity markets have begun acting a little bit better here you know I do see room for long rates to grind back towards 3% on the 10 year even if the fed is on the sidelines with respect to the policy rate on the short end of the curve
0: All right. Terrific. So let's take that great background around economics and markets and pivot over to think about investment solutions. So let's ask Polkett, what are your thoughts when people are thinking about navigating this environment that David just succinctly put through to all of our community out here? How do people invest? How do they think about portfolio construction? How do they think about frameworks for assembling investment opportunities? And what are your thoughts in that
2: arena? Absolutely. What we see first of all for many of the challenges which David highlighted earlier is that alternative allocations are rising across the board and there are several reasons and several pain points. And I'll highlight a few which we hear a lot from clients. The first one being, you know, the monetary policy and several years of monetary easing and the opposite of that is rising rates and as David said inflation's lurking somewhere there in the horizon. Volatility also is a big factor for rising uh, also allocations. We are at sort of the end of a 10-year bull run, expansion in the economic cycle. Volatility, actually, we saw a 100-year low in volatility in 2017, 18 uh, except the fourth quarter. And then, as David said, growth has been moderating. So if you look at our long-term capital market assumptions, the 60-40 portfolio over the next 10, 15 years probably delivers 5.5% total return. So there is a return gap for most investors around the world. And alternatives can come to the rescue in terms of fulfilling that return gap and helping investors achieve their return objectives. But more importantly, it's also with better income and lower volatility. So that's sort of is the fundamental reason why we see rising allocations. But then there's also the idea of understanding what you own in the alternative space. There's also the concept of how do you shape the portfolio to where you are in the economic cycle. And for that, we view that you have to look at a framework driven approach to organize alternative categories according to what they do for investor portfolios. Because allocations are rising, if the allocations are one, two, 5%, the construct of using a best ideas mindset, which is, do I like this particular strategy at this particular point in time or not, makes sense. But at 10, 15, 20, 25% of all allocations, it makes sense to have a proper framework. So what we have done is divided the alternatives world into three simple buckets according to what they do. The first the bottom building block is what we call the core foundation. So think of core real assets, think of core credit. Most of the returns come from income and they are mostly stable to generate stable outcomes. Then the second layer is what we call core complements. The classical category there is hedge funds and then return enhancers which do just that. So think of distressed credit or private equity there are two key tenets which are very important for alternative asset allocation the first one is to right size the mix of these asset classes in the portfolio how much should be in real assets versus private equity versus hedge funds and the other one which is equally and actually maybe more important is to right size risk which is the right size the combination of the core and the core complements versus the return enhancers and that's way more important late cycle where our view is that those core foundation categories should be overweighted and then giving you a little bit of flavor on what I mean by these asset classes. So talking about the core foundation, think of essential hard assets which are building blocks of productive societies, so office, industrial, retail, multifamily assets in great quality locations with long-term leases. Think of infrastructure assets, renewable and solar. Think of utilities, which are essential assets. Think of backbone assets such as transportation, energy logistics, aircrafts. Uh, These are all essential assets which generate a solid source of income. In general, 70 to 80% of the total return for these types of assets come from income, but they're local in nature, so they're non-correlated to stocks and bonds. Another core foundation category is core private credit. So think of the residential sector or the consumer sector and middle market direct lending. Majority of the return in this segment also comes from income. So That's a pretty solid core foundation. So what doesn't make sense in this segment of the alternatives is to overweight categories which are where a majority of the return comes from leverage or multiple expansion, especially in a late cycle environment. In the core complements categories, you know, we talked about hedge funds a period of low volatility has impacted their performance, but what we are seeing is a pickup in volatility. So think of strategies which really take advantage of price dislocation. So long short strategies, strategies which are market neutral, but take advantage of either rising rates or high volatility, so relative value strategies, and also, with the proliferation of data, quantitative strategies are all low beta and can be a really powerful tool in the toolkit, especially in a late cycle environment. And finally, the return enhancing categories, which talked about, so private credit or private equity have seen a lot of capital flow in their direction over the last few years, a trillion dollar in the private equity space. So discipline is very important there. Financial engineering is sort of an underweight. We think operational improvements, being very selective in the credit space and being prepared for corporate stress in the credit space are key tenets. So if you were were to remember one, a few, four key items in terms of what are our overweights in a late cycle environment, it would be strategies where the majority of the return comes from income and growth of income rather than multiple expansion. The strategies which are lowly levered rather than highly levered, where the alpha comes from operational improvement rather than financial engineering. And with a late cycle environment, there's typically more dispersion. So manager selection also becomes a key element.
0: Fantastic. There's a lot of good content and there's some very creative ideas about how to think about alternative investing, especially given this market and environment that David highlighted earlier for us. And so there's a lot of private vehicles that manifest themselves in the expression of individual product investments associated with what you highlighted there. What are some other advantages to private investment vehicles in the alternative space? And as they deliver against your framework, against solutions for investing in this environment, what are those advantages? Yeah, so there
2: are some structural advantages which private investments have, uh, unlike the public markets. One of them is structural control premium. So think of infrastructure. Think of private equity. There is a control premium which does not exist in the public markets. There's also the idea of information advantage because private markets are private markets. There is not enough data and you can actually create an alpha just from having a special information advantage when executing these investments. And then real estate, for example, is structurally local. It's heterogeneous. So these are structural attributes which are unique to private markets. What they translate into is not only a return premium, but also a volatility dampening effect. So it's just not about the return. It's about the risk adjusted returns. And we encourage investors to evaluate private investments from a variety of lenses, especially as it relates to risk. They should, again, look at their portfolio and evaluate the value proposition of private investments from a wall dampening, income enhancement perspective, from a beta dampening perspective, especially in an environment where many plants are thinking of de-risking their portfolios, and also an inflation premium perspective, which can all be generated from private investments. Of course, these benefits come with certain risks, so operational challenges, execution challenges, manager selection, managing the liquidity, are all key tenets which have to be evaluated and solved for. What we have found is that a 20% allocation to alternatives can actually move the needle from not only enhancing the return and income outcomes, but also dampening the volatility, dampening the beta, and enhancing the inflation sensitivity. And not only enhanced allocation to alternatives is important, it's also the diversified allocation to alternatives is important. And it should also be not only diversified, but diversifying in the context of the overall portfolio. So, our view is that the complexity of alternative investing can be simplified by looking at it from a framework lens, looking at what these investments do for the invested portfolio, applying the principles of more science and I would say less art in building that resilient portfolio, especially in today's challenging environment. Fantastic, a lot of good advice
0: there, a lot of good content. Let me take a moment to thank you both, David and Polkett, and thank all of you for joining us for the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on February 8, 2019.
3: For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II MIFIR requirements, specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs as non-independent research have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This content is a general communication being provided for informational purposes only— It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production— but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of JPMorgan Morgan Chasing Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by JPMorgan Asset Management in accordance with our company's privacy policy. For further information regarding our regional privacy policies, please refer to the EMEA privacy policy. For locational Asia-Pacific privacy policies, please click on the respective links, Hong Kong privacy policy, Australia privacy policy, Taiwan privacy policy, Japan privacy policy, and Singapore privacy policy. This communication is issued by the following entities, In the United Kingdom, by JP Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by JP Morgan Asset Management Europe SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or JP Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by JP Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited. Co reg number 197601586K. Or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. Co reg number 201120355E. In Taiwan by JP Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan by JP Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firm's Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia Limited, ABN 55143832080, 438 32080 AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2019, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.